0: Tonight what we're going to be doing is going back to our uh, key part of the lesson. I told you at the beginning of this, if you were here, that the, the major place in the Bible where we see the most talked about by Jesus himself on what worship is in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, in verses 21 through 24 in particularly, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman at the well at Shechem, Um, and this lady comes up, and they have this conversation. Now, she's a Samaritan woman. There's a lot of fascinating things about this story if you study John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. John chapter 3, you have the story with Nicodemus uh, and Jesus having the little parley at nighttime. Then the rest of John chapter 3, Jesus is baptizing in the same location that John the Baptist is baptizing, which is along the Jordan River at a place called um, Enon, which is... Uh, up in the northern part, actually, of the Jordan River. And then it says that Jesus is heading to Galilee, but he backtracks. He goes south somewhat to get on a major road, and he comes south to the, to Shechem, um, where this lady is living, and then proceeds to go up into Galilee after that. So it's funny how Jesus goes up um, to baptize, comes down, after spending a couple of months there, comes down a little bit to the Samaritan village, obviously to speak to this one gal, and and spends three or four days there, and then goes back up into Galilee. It was an intentional meeting. Don't think this was anything by accident. God designed this entire talk. So it's a fascinating thing, and you get into this. But we don't have time to go through all John 3 and 4. But we are looking at John chapter uh, 24, starting at verse 21 through 24 today. And I want to go through that, because tonight's topic is, where do I worship? We normally think of, primarily, many of us think of worshiping a taking place in a church sanctuary. Now, a lot of this, and I'm going to apologize, because I think a lot of this stuff I'm going to show you tonight, you already know, so it's going to be review for many of you, maybe two or three, this will be new stuff. But it is something very important. It is a, uh, a pivotal thing before I go into the next lesson that we cover this, because this is something that confuses a lot of people. Where am I supposed to worship? So, as we said, we've talked about the four types. I just went through that, so I'm just going to skip over that. Um, Oh, boy, here we go again. Okay, in John chapter 4, starting at verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And this little passage, worship just keeps coming up. This is such a focal point having to do with worship. So what's been going on? What happened here? Jesus is sitting down at the well. The woman comes over, and they start this conversation. Now, for one thing, she's Samaritan. Now, to totally understand this and to understand what Jesus is talking about, Because she asked, where am I supposed to worship? That's what started this whole conversation. And for us to understand this, we have to understand a little bit about the Samaritans and who they are. Uh, This woman is from Samaria. And the Samaritans, now I'll tell you, I think a lot of people have this this problem or this, this story actually wrong. I think it's often taught incorrectly. That if you're familiar with the story, Jesus is talking to this woman, and then he says, if you will recall how the story goes a few verses before, um, she, uh, Jesus says, go get your, your husband. And she responds, well, I don't have a husband. Remember, Jesus says, that's right, you've had you know, like seven husbands and a man you're with now you're not married to. And then she says, oh, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she immediately changes the subject to ask this question, where am I supposed to worship? Now, I've heard this many times by many people, that because Jesus is hitting close to home in her heart, she feels uncomfortable and is trying to change the subject. How many of you have heard that? It's the most common interpretation of this. I don't think it's correct. I think this lady is actually wondering the age-old question that a lot of us are wondering, too. What is the correct way to worship God? She is recognizing that Jesus is probably the Messiah. And because of that, Who better to ask? But the problem is, she's a Samaritan. Now, what does that mean to us? Let's do a little background study really fast here. I'm going to give you a little bit of history on the Samaritans. Who are the Samaritans? Well, when David and Solomon were reigning, Israel, the 12 tribes, were all combined into one nation. When Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became the new king. Then this hothead named Jeroboam I rose up against the devonic rule and began a civil war. So there was a civil war taking place between the upper kingdoms, ten kingdoms to the north and two kingdoms to the south. The ten northern tribes sided with this hothead Jeroboam I, leaving just these two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, basically, who melded into one tribe with King Rehoboam, the grandson of King David. Now, to give you an idea, here were the twelve tribes, of how they were set up during the biblical time of David and Solomon. Um, After the civil war is over, you can see Israel's in the purple and then Judah is down to the bottom, very reduced in size. So that's what's been happening now is this is going on with these these battles, if you will, um, throughout this time. So as it continues, Jeroboam's 10 tribe nation, they won the civil war and they become simply known as Israel Though some t- places in the Bible they are also, also called Ephraim. Um, later, that whole country is called Samaria because the capital city of Samaria, uh, which was constructed under General Omri, who became King Omri. Um, and so Jeroboam rebuilt and fortified the city of Shechem, which is at the foot of this mountain called Gerizim. So you got this big mountain here called Gerizim, a village down at the bottom, Shechem, and that becomes a very important city. Um, and that's where this starts to take place. Well, starting with Jeroboam I, after the Civil War is over, Jeroboam leads the people away from worship of God into worshiping idols. And idol worship became very much the norm. They made all sorts of idols. He appointed his own priests, contrary to what God's word was on that. And uh, he just did everything going against God's plan. God sends prophets, he pays no attention to them. Matter of fact, he uh, has some bad run-ins with prophets and things, and um, even though God is trying to call the people back, Jeroboam leads the people into the worship of the Baals and Asherah and others. Um, one of the sites that he built was this one here at Tel Dan in northern Galilee area. Beautiful place, this is a high place. And in this place here, there was this, uh, this was this actual site. This was built by Jeroboam I. Uh, archaeologists have dug this out, and this was a high place. There was an altar that sat down here, a laver down here, and this was a large uh, platform where worship was taking place for the Baals and Asherah. Um, and also, at this point, they put gold calves here. Jeroboam actually had calves made. And If you recall from last week, I told you that when the Israelites came out of um, Egypt at the foot of Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, Aaron the priest made these this calf, a golden calf, and said, this is the God who's defeated all the armies of Egypt, and this is God. That's what Jeroboam was basically starting off with. He thought, I'll make a calf, of uh, a golden calf. I'll put one up in, in the north. I'll put one down to the south. That way people don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship God, and they can just go to these two sites, and that's who God is which <laughs> that is not acceptable to God, obviously. So this goes on for a couple hundred years. And finally, God has enough. In 722 BC, God sends the Assyrians, the most evil nation that's ever existed, in to destroy Samaria and conquer the place once and for all. And when they did this, this did a major thing <laughs> for the northern tribe. You see, the Assyrians took anybody who was important of influence, any teacher, governor, royal person, anybody who was skilled, And deported them out of the country and put them all through. The Assyrians had conquered pretty much the world and took them and spread them all over the place. This resulted in what we often call today the lost ten tribes of Israel. Uh, Only the poor and unimportant people were left in the the area to keep the agriculture and stuff going. But that wasn't where uh, the Assyrians left it. Uh, The king of Assyria then sent, that had conquered other foreign nations, he sent foreign nations that he'd captured people from that one, and he deported them and put them into Samaria to intermarry with these, um, these Israelites there. And now these Israelites become half-breeds. They left the God of Abraham and Moses for these idols uh, that these now all these people are bringing in, all these different cultures worshiping other god, Chemosh, Dagon, Marmuk. all these things are bringing them all in here, um, and now Samaria is real. I mean, it was bad before with idol worship. Now it's just overflowing with idol worship. That's what's happened. That's what's going on in this land during this period of time. So the Samaritans now to give you an idea too, on what this lady's background is, who's asking this very important question. The Samaritans discarded all of the books of the old Testament, except the first five, the Torah or the Pentateuch. They're the only ones that they said were inspired of God. So the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, all the Psalms, the, um, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, psh, that's not written by God. That, God had nothing to do with that. Those are man-made works. We're not going to worship those. They only kept the first five. Of course, they also kept religious writings from other nations also. But the Torah was the only thing they really accepted. And then, to add more insult to their own religions and stuff like that, around 400 B.C., they built a temple to Mount Gerizim, to Zeus, on top of this mountain. Now remember, this Samaritan woman, this is her background. I'm giving you the background of what this lady's like so we can understand w- what kind of question she's asking. So the Samaritans are saying, Jerusalem is not the place you're supposed to worship. Mount Gerizim is supposed to be the place to worship. The temple down in Jerusalem is the wrong one. The temple here on Mount Gerizim is where we worship God. That's the holy mountain, not the one in Jerusalem, not the temple mount, no. So that's what's going on. And to give you an idea here, of what happens in 128 BC? John Hyrcanus, um, the Hasmonean leader of Judea, or Judea, fought the Samaritans, and he destroyed that temple. And it was never rebuilt. Even so, to this day, and yes, Samaritans do exist still today. They continue to worship only on Mount Gerizim. As far as I found is, uh I, I tried to find out what the world census is on Samaritans. It's about 600 was the latest thing I could find on it. And that was a couple of years ago, um, the last census that I found that they were included in. About 600 Samaritans still exist today, if you didn't know that. They still are there. And believe it or not, they still go to that same mountain. It's in the West Bank. They go to that same mountain, and they perform lamb sacrifices, bull sacrifices, just like they did back in the days of David, Solomon, and all of them that is still going on there. Um, they take the animal, they sacrifice the blood, and do the whole thing. That, that does still take place, yes. There's only like about 600 people involved in this. Though their numbers have been increasing. Going back after World War II, there was only about 250 of these guys, of these people, the Samaritans. So their numbers are increasing. Sort of interesting there. But um, to show you a little bit too of where this is, this is a picture here from the West Bank taken from a vehicle. But this is Shechem, where all this is taking place, where Jesus came to meet with the woman at the well. Um, And this mountain here is Mount Ebal. Joshua built an altar up there, um, which the archaeological remains have been discovered and everything. Um, This mountain over here is Mount Gerizim. And that's where the temple used to sit right up on top of that. So the temple oversat on this high place up here. um, And that's where all that takes place. And it still does to this day. That's still an active place of worship for Samaritans. So the Samaritan woman, now you know her background a little bit. The Samaritan woman had determined that Jesus, because he could tell the future, he he could read her mind that he was supernatural um, and determined that Jesus was not some ordinary Jew. You know, she was puzzled because Jesus, being a Jew, talks to her, for one thing. I mean, to the Jews, Samaritans were wasted flesh. Do you know the Pharisees used to pray to God never to spare the Samaritans, never to redeem them? It was one of their things. You know, they used to pray, thank you, Lord, I'm not a Samaritan, I'm not a woman, I'm not a Gentile. Hey, that's what the Samaritan, don't look at me like that, ladies, That's what they they used to pray that. And he used to pray that the Samaritans, God, would never ever redeem them. They were half-breeds. And that's how they were viewed. So when Jesus comes and talks to her, whoa, that's shocking. And why would he do that? And why does he know things about her and stuff like this? You know, it just blew her mind. Could this be the Messiah? That's what she thought. And she actually refers to this. You keep reading the story with her, you come to find out that's what she believes in. Church history actually has uh, stories about this lady. Whether they're accurate or not, we do not know. The Catholic Church has stories that this gal actually became a disciple of Jesus and went on all the way to Rome and testified in front of Caesar that Jesus is Lord. Uh, And then she was, I believe, according to the stories, I believe she was executed also. But anyway... The point is, she is knowing or suspecting at this point that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So she immediately went to, I don't think she's trained to change the question because, you know, oh, Jesus, you're hitting too close to home. No, I think she would have asked something different. Instead, she goes to the age-old question that has separated the Jews from the Samaritans, and I think this gal is hungering in her heart. This is a gal, how many husbands guy she's living with? This is a gal who has been used by men all of her entire life. Here is a man who seems to be taking a key interest in her, for the first time probably. And I think she's grabbing onto this, and he is a holy prophet. She's catching this. Maybe this is the Messiah. This is a person who can tell me how I'm supposed to worship God. I think that's what's going on here. So, Might be a little different than what your pastor or you may have been taught, but that's what I think. Because the question was: where are people supposed to worship? Do we worship at Mount Gerizim? Do we worship in Jerusalem? What is the place for proper worship? And that's what she asks. But look what Jesus says to her. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, you can just see him pointing right up there, this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Well, you worship the Father. And that's true because the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and stuff like that. Anyway, you worship, taking her you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus is really giving her something here. Jesus said that salvation is from the Jews. Now, I want you to notice something, though. The Jews were not worshiping correctly. How can I say that? What did Jesus do in the previous chapter in John? He cleared the temple. You think that they were worshiping correctly? You know, he doesn't doesn't say, oh, you need to worship the way the Jews are. That's not what he says. Uh -uh, Because the Jews aren't doing it right either. They're sinning also with unacceptable worship. That's what's happening. And so he's giving it to her. He says, yeah, you Samaritans, you're doing it wrong. The Jews are not doing it right either. But salvation is from the Jews. The Jews were into traditions. They were into the ceremonies, the rituals of the law. They were so wrapped up in this. But... As we see so many times, both in the Old Testament, as I quoted so many of these passages last week, like from, from Amos and, and Hosea and stuff, they were, they were not doing correct worship. Their attitudes were not right. Their hearts were not right. They were going through the motions of, of worshiping God, but <laughs> it wasn't inside. It was just doing the ritual, just going through rituals. It meant nothing to them. They were offering God poor sacrifices, ill animals, the worst things they could possibly do instead of giving God the best. So the Jews, their hearts were not in their worship. And Jesus just throughout the time of his ministry is calling what these people are doing, the Sanhedrin who are in charge of the worship and stuff, telling them, basically, you guys are sinning. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And this is an acceptable form of worship. And as we discussed in the last lesson, God does not accept that. Hmm. Now, in the old covenant, God designed a special place for worship. Where he himself would be manifest, we called it the tabernacle. By the way, the word tabernacle means dwelling. That's what the word tabernacle means. In Hebrew, it's the same word for dwelling, which makes that verse really interesting. You know the, how, um, where it says in John that uh, Jesus came, the Son of Man came, God came and dwelt among us. You want to put that in Hebrew, God came and tabernacled with us. That's that's what it is. So the tabernacle. So to give you an idea of what this little tent thing was here, I'm going to go a real quick little review on what the structure is because this is so important. Do you know that the Bible has over 243 verses on the tabernacle itself? God is designing a place of worship, a specific place, and specific ways of coming before him, the Almighty, the Holy God, And we're going to be talking about that later on in the lesson. And it was called the tabernacle. And as this image is showing you, um, if you're listening to us on the web or something, you can't see it. But we have a picture of the tabernacle there. It's an artistic drawing. And right above where the Holy of Holies is, there is this phenomenal blazing light going skyward. God's presence was there. And God's presence was able to be seen. The tabernacle sat in the middle of the camp. People camped all the way around it. It only had one entry, just one gate, because there is only one way to get to God. And Jesus reiterates that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That represents Jesus. Give you a little clue here, a question. Tribes all camped around in certain places. They all had assigned places. What tribe sat right at the opening? Yeah, Max, what is it? Judah, the tribe of Judah. Why Judah? Because Jesus is a descendant of Judah. That was the tribe where salvation comes from. And it was the tribe always to camp right in front. So in other words, if you're sitting way out here on the outskirts, about a quarter of a mile away, to come to the tabernacle, you had to walk through different tribes, but you had to come into the tribe of Judah and go through the tribe of Judah to get into where the presence of God is. And coming into the presence of God, that's worshiping. Mm. So... That's the tabernacle. And let's just run through some of the parts of the tabernacle just to let you see what these are. Um, There was the one entrance as you come in. It's a tent, uh, like a fence on the outside, and then there's this big tent on the inside. The first thing you come to is this altar of uh, bronze altar here for burning the uh, burnt offering. And you would bring your animal in here. And the only way, now, now see, this is so important for you to understand in worshiping here. God's presence is back here in the Holy of Holies. Over the Ark of the Covenant... The lid of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. That's where God actually spoke to Moses from, and that's where God's presence would be manifest. It would appear there. Those God is spirit and everywhere, he would appear in this one spot. And the glory, the Shekinah glory in there just was like this blinding. They couldn't even describe it, the name Shekinah meaning that. But um, that's where this was. Now, to get into the presence of God, the ordinary Joe, like Joe Jew here or something, I (laughs) don't know. (laughs) Thank <laughs> make <laughs> I just need to give a name. So Joe has to walk through here, coming into the entrance. Now, to approach a holy God, the thing is, we're covered in sin. So what we have to do is we have to bring a burnt offering. We have to spill blood. So that's what this is for. The first thing to come in, you've got to be forgiven of sin. You're going to come into the presence of God. You've got to get rid of your sin. So this represents salvation. Then the next thing that happens, we come in, there's this bronze laver. And that's the washing basin that the, the priest would use. Because this is as far as you would come. The priests who were performing the sacrifice and slaughtering animals on each side, and plus this is a dirt floor, their feet get dirty and stuff, they got to get cleaned up every now and then. I mean, after doing a sacrifice, they got blood all over their hands, you got to wash it off, so you go over to the laver. They were constantly washing all the time. The Levites were responsible to keep changing this water daily, all the time, constantly refilling it. When it got dirty, they would empty it and fill it up again. And um, before you could come into the holy place, this section here, There was a doorway here, only one again. You would come inside of here, and you had to be cleansed first. Now, you already had your blood to forgive your sins. Now you get cleansed again because you're going to get dirty walking around. Then you walk inside here. Here's the table of showbread. Here's the golden lampstand. There's an altar of incense. There's the curtain separating uh, where the God's presence is at the ark here and the rest of the place. That's what this was. And all of this is set up for... Showing us how we're supposed to worship God. Do you understand what's happening here? So Joe Jew comes in here with his sin. First thing he's got to do is he's got to be forgiven of his sin before he can approach a holy God. Before he can worship God, you've got to have your sin removed. Do you understand what that means for even us today? Do you realize to worship God, you have to know Jesus as Savior? True. It's a mandate from God. You have to be saved. If you're not saved, you're doing unacceptable worship. The blood of animals and stuff like that really can't cover book of Hebrews. We'll get into that in a few minutes. But you come in here, he offers his sacrifice. Now, that's really as far as he could go. That's the closest he could get. Priests now who represent man and are going to go between in intermediators, they can walk and carry, like, his requests and stuff and whatever. They could go inside of all of this, but they had to wash first. Now here, this is talking about salvation. This is talking about the cleansing after. If all of us in this room, and I hope they are, we all are, know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we still live in a world of sin. We still get dirty. We still get contaminated. And before, folks, listen to me carefully. Before you can ever go into the presence of God to worship God, you've got to get cleansed. Yes, we're saved once and for all. We go through the altar once. Boom, we're done with that. But the thing is, we get contaminated. Before you can go into a time of wholly worshiping God, you better cleanse your heart. That's very important when it comes to worship, if you're going to do true worship. So you just don't go into a service sometime and just think, oh, it's time to go in here, I'll sing some songs, and that'll be my worship thing. No, as I've already pointed out, that is not worship. To worship by God's command, you've got to be saved, and you better make sure that all your sins are covered. If you're carrying anything, some grudge against somebody, or whatever it is, you better clear that up before you ever come into the presence of God. You're coming into the holy standard of what holiness is, And I think as Christians, we lose that mindset today. A lot of it from contemporary songs. We've made Jesus into our buddy-buddy. We forget many times how holy God is. It still kills me. When Isaiah talks about, in the beginning of his book, and he talks about how he was able to go into the presence of God, Isaiah was a pretty religious person, I would think. I mean, he was one of the most important prophets Yet what did he do when he came into the presence? He fell on his face and cried, saying that he was a foul-mouthed sinner. This is a, this is I'm sorry, I, Isaiah. I mean, this is Isaiah. This is a big guy here, very important Bible character, and he falls down and he is like, "Oh, I am a sinner. I'm doomed." And an angel goes over, takes a coal, and touches it to his lips, and says, "Now your sins are forgiven. You can come." So I don't think we catch that anymore. If God's our buddy-buddy, we lose that aspect of respect and awe and admiration. I think that's very important for us to catch that. Then you come in here, and there's the table of shell bread. Bread, which feeds us. The word of God feeds us. The lampstand, which guides us. The word of God guides us. And Jesus is both the bread of life. He is the light of the world. And then we come over here to the altar of incense, which represents prayer. And with prayer, we can worship God. Then we can walk through this because Christ's death opened up this veil when he died on the cross. This veil here that's separated, that this curtain was split in two. And now we have total access to the most holy God. That's an amazing thing right there. So, God also, besides the tabernacle itself, He set up a bunch of sacrifices for various reasons. uh, For worshiping Him. He gave all sorts of different things for worshiping Him. He also designed a whole pile of holidays, different holidays, for worship of Him. He had these feasts for worship of Him. And He designed all of these things throughout the year so that people would be constantly reminded of Him. That God is always foremost on our thoughts. Every day when you get up, every day as you live your life, every day before you go to bed, God is foremost in your mind. Now, I know that's easy to say and it's difficult to do. I agree. I'm human. I know that's, that's typical. Very hard for us to do that kind of thing. But that's what God actually desires. And I sort of hit on a key thing here. If you're wondering what worship is, I sort of mentioned it. Worship, really, takes place daily. From the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed, worship is supposed to be taking place all the time. It's just not the song service. We'll cover that a little bit more later on. Like I say, these feasts and holidays, God set up these beautiful things. And I'll tell you, I I did this about, oh, I don't know, 11 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, something like that, I did this series with my senior high um, at youth group, the the church I work at. I did a whole study just on the feasts and holidays of the Jews, taking it out of the Old Testament. And most people thought, oh my gosh, this is gonna be the most boring thing in the world. Ended up being one of the best lessons we ever did because the way we studied it was how Jesus, everything was pointing always to Jesus in these things. Now, we do not have to today, we do not have to do this, follow these things. This is part of the old covenant. But I know many Christians and many Christian families that make a practice for, I don't want to say the fun of it, but just for the, the, um, the traditions of it, for the, the interest of it, not, knowing it has nothing to do with their salvation or relationship with God, they follow these, these holidays still. I know families that do this. They'll follow each one of these things. You know, it, um, they'll have, they'll do the uh, unleavened bread. They do uh, the Passover. They'll have a seder meal. They'll do um, the uh, even when at the feast of Tabernacles, they set out in the camp in their backyard, uh, making a little booth and stuff. They know it has nothing to do with their salvation, but because it was something that God instituted in the old covenant, they like to do it. And then they sit and they talk about God and how Jesus fulfills this. It's a fascinating study. If you really want something you're sort of struggling, I don't know what to do in a Bible study, personal study, try this. You'll be amazed. It's one of the most amazing structures of how Jesus fits through this whole thing. So it's a great study to try. I challenge you to do that if you've never done it. But as we said, uh, God set up this thing called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was then later replaced during Solomon's reign with Solomon's temple, giving you a diagram here basically of what Solomon's temple looked like. Solomon's temple was actually pretty small. Uh, though it was bigger than the, the tabernacle itself. Again, you have the bronze laver. You have, uh, over here, you have the altar of incense. Or, I'm sorry, the a bronze altar here. You come in through the main doorway here. Again, there's just one. And there'd be the table of showbread. There'd be the menorah. There'd be the lamp, uh, altar of uh, incense where this priest is standing here in this illustration I'm showing, going into where the Ark of the Covenant was. That was Solomon's temple. And Solomon's temple hung around for a while, but then it was destroyed. Um, and by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. It would be partially rebuilt by Zerubbabel in 517 B.C. during the reign of the Persians. That was the temple. Artist conception of what Zerubbabel's temple looked like. Now imagine you were living at that time, and you were an old person, and you remembered Solomon's temple before the Babylonians destroyed it. And now this is what we're worshiping in. Do you see how, when it says in the Bible, the old men cried when the temple was dedicated? Because they could remember Solomon's and how this one was so, so poor in its construction and stuff. But Zerubbabel's temple in 517 would be eventually rebuilt by Herod the Great Though it's not here today because the Romans destroyed it in 79 AD under General Titus. This is a model, uh, a photograph I took when I was in Jerusalem of a model at the museum there showing you the size of the temple that Herod built. Uh, Solomon's temple was tiny, tiny compared to the size of this massive temple. And it was one of the most lavish, beautiful temples in the entire ancient world. So that's what it was set up as. As a matter of fact, if you go there today, the, the Dome of the Rock, as I go back here, uh, the Dome of the Rock sits right here. Actually, um, the temple probably did not sit where the Dome of the Rock is. Archaeologists, Many archaeologists now believe that uh, Solomon's temple sat over here. The Dome of the Rock sat in what's called the Court of the Gentiles, which I think God's got a sense of humor. Having the Islamic holy site sitting in the Court of the Gentiles. Hmm. Obviously, you must be sleeping. Now, during the Old Covenant, worship was mainly done in the temple. And Jesus said and tells this lady that the Samaritans are worshiping wrong. You know, they had built a temple, but they were worshiping wrong. Now, historically, we can find out how the Samaritans, and we can still watch it today. Matter of fact, I believe there's even some YouTubes out there that I have seen of the Samaritans during their sacrificial system on Mount Gerizim. These people are very enthusiastic. It's a massive party. I mean, they're just dancing around and everything. And I mean, there's enthusiasm at this thing. And Samaritans were very, and they were. If you study the Old Testament and find out how the Samaritans were actually worshiping all these idols, they were very enthusiastic, no question about it. They had enthusiasm about the thing. Um, It was all wrong, but they had enthusiasm about it. Um, but being enthusiastic about worship is not enough though there's many Christians today that think that's what it is just hopping up and down jumping up throwing your hands screaming and shouting and praising God like that they say oh that's good that's that's my worship thing I did a great job of worshiping tonight because you know I really got emotionally into it and stuff like that Uh, that's not what God says No, it's not. Some think that they haven't worshipped. I've talked with many people who say they haven't worshipped until they reach some emotional, I love how they say, some emotional high or some climax in the service like that, emotionally. Then I feel like I've worshipped. Then you're not worshipping properly. Something's wrong in your worship. Because that's not what real worship is. That's what the Samaritans were very guilty of. They were so enthusiastic and stuff like that. They worship God. They worship a lot of other things too. But they were, they were very enthusiastic. And God said that that was incomplete worship. They were worshiping in spirit. Boy, they were into it. But they were not worshiping in truth. Mm-mm. There's problems with that type of worship. Mainly, it's not true worship. It's not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. The Jews, on the other hand, were just the opposite. They were performing these required sacrifices, going through the ceremonies, the rituals and stuff, the motions of correct worship, but their hearts weren't in it. They were not right with God. And Jesus is constantly condemning them for this. The prophets in the Old Testament were constantly uh, putting them down for this and and saying, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You're doing this wrong. You're sinning. They were worshiping in truth. They were following God's word, but... uh, their hearts weren't in it. They weren't worshiping in spirit. And Jesus says, if you're going to worship, as he says, he clears it up, he says, if you're going to worship God, he tells her how. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. We're talk, that's a whole lesson right there we're going to talk about. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Not with one without the other. They go hand in hand. They're a combination, folks. True worship of God. Jesus is telling you how to do it. It takes both of these. That's what's going on. You see, we do not need to go to a place, a church building, to worship God. That is the bulk of what I'm saying tonight. Because a lot of us do not totally understand correct worship as according to what God says. And God makes it very clear, as Jesus is talking about, and he says, W- worshiping on this mountain or in Jerusalem, hey, it doesn't matter. Time's coming very soon and you won't worship in any of these places. No, you don't have to go to a church building to worship God. There's a lot of other places you can worship God to work great. The forest, your car, your bathroom, your bedroom. On a sidewalk. You don't have to be in a church building. Though I know many people who think that's really the proper way to worship. I remember as a little kid walking into the sanctuary of our church when I was growing up, chewing gum and laughing and carrying on. And I got scolded very heavily. And I said, why? What did I do wrong? I was just a little kid, maybe 20. (laughs) Um, I was maybe about six or seven, but I, I still remember this. And I got told by this lady that this is where God lives. You must treat this place with respect. Chewing gum and popping gum is very disrespectful to God. And talking, when you come in here, into his presence. And that sort of got me for a while. I was really thinking, God lives in this building? Really? In here? This isn't even that pretty of a church. Went home, asked my dad, and and my dad says, No. That is not right. He quoted me where Paul says that God doesn't live in man-made structures. <laughs> God is spirit. He is everywhere. Yes, God was in that church building. And it's not his home. Like, if you're going to write a letter to God, you don't write, you know, this church and put a stamp on it and put it in the mail. But, well, wait a minute, Michael. Um, God himself told us to worship him in a tabernacle or a temple. Well, if that's what he said back then, how come we don't have to do that today? Good question. That's a very good question. Um, A lot of people think that you have to do that, but no. Um, To make it really simple, it's this way. It isn't really different. You see, we are still to worship God where his spirit dwells. Now the question comes, where does God's spirit dwell? Well, God is spirit. It's everywhere. But God does dwell somewhere. God does still tabernacle somewhere. And I think most of you know what it is, because you're smiling from ear to ear. It's either that or the ice cream finally hit the stomach and you're feeling really good right now. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 23, 23 and 24 tells us, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord. Am I not God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. In other words, am I not everywhere? I'm everywhere. That's one of the attributes of God. He's everywhere at all times. You can't escape. You can't get away from God. There's no way of getting out of the presence of God, no matter where you go. That means we can worship God anywhere. But what about worshiping God in the tabernacle and the temple? Well, it's a little hard for one thing, because they've been destroyed. But, um, well, there's an answer for that. Um, Do we worship God in a tabernacle or temple? Yes, we do. We do worship God in a tabernacle and temple because Christians are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Look at these verses. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit, God's Spirit, dwells? That's the word tabernacle, remember. Dwells in you? For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Take a look at 2 Corinthians six sixteen. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Yes, we, being Christians, again, to worship God, you have to be saved. Why? Because God's spirit has to be inside of you to do this. And the only way you get the spirit of God living inside of you is to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what this is all about. To worship God correctly, we need to worship him both in spirit and in truth. Jesus says this twice. If he's reiterating it twice in Greek, that means it's very important. So that's what we have to do. We do not have to be in a church building. We can worship God anywhere because he's always there. So what happens to all those old regulations? What about those offerings, those feasts? Do we still have to worship God that way like the Samaritans are still doing? No. God gave us, and I get asked this quite often, so this is confusing to a lot of teens, God gave us those regulations, those offerings, those feasts, those holidays, etc., as a protocol for worship in the Old Covenant. We're in the New Covenant, but each piece, as I tried to show you earlier, each piece of that methodology of those things point to, they are prophetic, and they were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Like I say, Do a Bible study on these. It'll be one of the greatest Bible studies you ever do to study these feasts, these offerings. How do they point to Jesus? How do they point us to worship God today? It's amazing. It's an awesome thing. And I really challenge you to try that. So um, I'll tell you what. Let me give you an example really quick here as we just end this. An example of how being the temple of God today, God, I hope you guys realize you are the temple of God and how being the temple of God today, we still use these methods. We do. We still use these methods to worship God. And let me show you just really quick here as we go through this. I sort of did this at the beginning. I'm just wrapping it up here now. First, number one, most important to be a true worshiper of God, you need to come to God with blood to cover your sins. The blood of animals doesn't really work. This is the burnt offering. The first thing as you come into the tabernacle or the temple was to do a burnt offering. To come in to have access to God, you have to be saved. You have to be redeemed. That's it. The atonement has to be made. There you go. That's first. In Hebrews, beautiful book. Have you ever been confused about how all this stuff fits with the new covenant? Read Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, that's what he spends most of this book doing, talking about the Old Covenant and how Jesus fulfills it and makes it possible for us to worship. It is a phenomenal book. But look what it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11-14. But when Christ appeared as the high priest, whoa, there's cool, um, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, talking about the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh how much more will the blood of christ his blood covers everything once and for all you see in the old covenant you had do you realize how it was in the old covenant days say for instance this is how it was okay i'm i'm joe jew Okay, I'm walking to work or going down the road and stuff like this, and some hot cheeky babe comes walking by and like, (laughs) "Wow, look at that! (laughs) Oh man, I'm married. (laughs) Forgot about that. Um, Oh, oh, I sinned. Okay, God, I just committed adultery. Okay, I know what I got to do. I go home and I get my best lamb. Go up to the tabernacle. Go up to the priest. I sinned. This is what I did. Killed the thing. Okay, sacrifices it. Okay, you're. Sins are forgiven. Now, don't sin no more. Okay, I won't. Turn around and I start walking out. And uh, I come over, and a person asks me, Hey, it worked. Did you do this thing at work? Well, uh, I sort of did that, but uh, I'm not going to tell you the truth about it. I'm going to sort of shade the truth a little bit. And so I start telling a little lie here and everything. And I'm like, Oh. And afterwards, he walks off like I got away with it, but oh, man, my conscience is about it. Yeah, I sinned. I know. I got to go back. Go get another lamb. Pick up a lamb, bring it back to the tabernacle. Okay, hey, yeah, I guess it's, I know it's me again, but you know, <laughs> so yeah, you. <laughs> Slit the thing, sacrifice the thing, does all the stuff like that. Now, go on, don't send no more. Okay, I won't, I won't. Oh, wow, look at that chariot my neighbor got. Oh, the gold trim. Ooh, wow, look at that, and that horse. Oh, man, do I want that? Why don't I get something like that? I never, I should get one of those. He's, he's, I make more money in him. And Oh, man, I'm coveting. Oh, gee, that was one of those commands. Okay, where's my next lamb? <laughs> All right, let's go back over here. Hi, you again? What is the matter with you? I'm a sinner, I know. Yeah, so we sacrifice the thing again. Now, don't sin no more. Okay, okay, I go, out, you see the idea here. The thing is, with Jesus, it's like this. Jesus, I sin. I'm keeping sin. These animal things are not taking away all my sin. How about I sacrifice you? And Jesus says, yes, I will do that. My blood will cover all your sins forever because I'm not a bull, a goat. I am the Lamb of God. You see the difference? Mm-hmm. This is the symbol of salvation. To be a true worshiper of God, you must be saved to enter into his presence. That is so important for us to understand. The symbol of salvation. Second, before we can come into the holy presence of God, we have to have clean hearts. As I said, that was the labor the next thing. Psalm, the writer of Psalm, gives us a very important clue about how we can approach a holy God to worship him. In Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, look what he says. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? In other words, coming into the presence of God. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Standing in the holy presence of God. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from God, the God of his salvation. This is the labor, the washing. Today, we are saved once and for all, but we keep sinning. We keep getting contaminated because of the world we live in. Before we ever go into a worship service, folks, but before the next time you ever sit down and seriously worship God, make sure your hands are clean, and your heart is pure. You are coming into the presence of the holy, almighty God. So before we can truly worship God in spirit and in truth, we need to search our hearts. We need to examine to see if there's any wicked ways in a, or sins that need to be corrected, that need to be confessed. David leads us again in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. David understood. He would know. Third, before we can come to worship God in spirit and in truth, we need to come into the holy place of of the temple, our temple, here is where the Spirit fills us. If you recall in the tabernacle or the temple, the next thing, here's the table of bread, here's the light, and there's the altar. But these two things, the, the bread of life, the light of the word, the world, is talking about the word. The word is truth. We worship in that. That's a lesson coming up, too. Hmm. Wait. Truth is the word of God? Oh, yeah. We're supposed to worship. In spirit and in truth. Are you telling me, Michael, there's something between the word of God and worshiping God correctly? Yes. That's a lesson coming up. Fourth, still in the holy place, we come to the altar of incense. We pray to God. The altar of incense, they burned incense. Incense is symbolic of the prayers of the people. It's found all through scripture, Old and New Testament, both. To worship God in prayer, we have that avenue open to us when we have pure Hearts, clean hands, we can come before God like that with the word of God. Do you guys realize, I'm giving you a little preview here, do you realize when I say the word of God is a part of worship? That the sermons is a part of worship? you get that? Hearing the Bible clearly explained, expository preaching is actually a form of worship we're going to get into that. Finally, we can come into the Holy of Holies itself, where the presence of God is. Remember, this is our temple inside of us. Christ's death on the cross resulted in the tear of the curtain, which separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. Jesus made it open that we can walk right up to God's presence when we go through the proper procedures You don't wanna come before a holy God full of a whole pile of crud. That's not a healthy thing to do. And that would be unacceptable worship, because remember number four was worshiping God with the wrong attitude. You gotta come in that way. That's how God is telling us to worship. I'm not into how man tells us to worship. I'm just looking at what God is saying on how we're supposed to worship. We do not need to go to a temple some place, to some tabernacle, to some church to worship God, we don't have to because we can go and take God everywhere we go. Every single place you travel, do you realize if you're a born again Christian, that every single place you go, you're pulling along the Holy Spirit with you? You're pulling on the presence of God? That might make some of you think, all of us, maybe we should be a little bit more careful of some of the places we go, some of the things we do, some of the things we look at. Because what do you do? Okay, I know I should not be participating in this. I know I should not do this. Holy Spirit, I know you're with me. I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. I know you're here with me but I'm still intentionally going to go over here. Would you please close your eyes because I really want to go see this. I really want to go participate in this. It's like you're handcuffed to them and you're taking them in there. I think if we really look at it that way, I think we would all live our lives a little different. I really do. I think that's something we need to be remembering because I think that also is so important in our worship. Got some thought questions there, but I'm just going to close in prayer here because I've gone a little long here tonight. Thank you for being patient with me. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, this was a very, very difficult message for me to try and put together just because of all the illness and being poisoned and feeling sick this week and just trying to just even think clearly was so difficult. But I pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, is the one who's doing the teaching here and I just pray that you just really speak to our hearts. Lord, help us as we focus more on how we should be worshiping you. Forgive us for all the shortcomings that we do. But oh God, how I thank you for Jesus Christ who came and took my place in death, that I sacrificed him. He willingly went there, his blood spilled. Lord, I thank you so much for putting your spirit inside of me and it will be there forever. I thank you that you don't remove it. Forgive me when I take it places it should not go, when I drag you along into my sin. Lord, it makes me sick to think about it. But help us, Lord, when we go into worshiping you, whatever the situation, day or night, whenever, wherever we are, to always remember to come before you with a clean heart, clean hands. so that we can truly worship you in spirit and in truth as Jesus says. Thank you for this. God bless us all in Jesus' name, amen.